from the School of International Service at American University in Washington, this is Big World, where we talk about something in the world that truly matters. On January 6, 2021, a throng of Donald Trump supporters attacked the U.S. Capitol building. Their stated goal was to overturn the valid results of the 2020 presidential election by interrupting the U.S. Congress's count of electoral votes that would certify the election. Their actions included chaotic, uncoordinated riot moves like scrambling up walls and aimlessly roaming halls, combined with truly menacing and coordinated activities designed to threaten and harm police, members of Congress, and the vice president. The toll, when it was all over, was the deaths of five people, injuries to 138 police officers, and the deaths by suicide of four additional police officers in the aftermath. Was it a violent protest or a riot? or insurrection? Or was it domestic terrorism? Today, we're talking about the January 6th attack on the Capitol, and we're talking about domestic terrorism. I'm Kay Summers, and I'm joined by Joe Young. Joe is a professor in the School of International Service and the School of Public Affairs at American University. He researches and teaches on terrorism, counterterrorism, and domestic political violence. He publishes prolifically, and he's consulted on a Department of Defense initiative focusing on countering violent extremism. Joe, thanks for joining Big World. Oh, thank you for having me, Kay. And you were with us a few years ago when we were just getting started back in 2017. So it's great to have you back. (laughs) Always love a repeat guest. So Joe, I listed off a bunch of labels for what happened on January 6th. And I believe that I heard all of those used in the news media at the time. So to start off, how is domestic terrorism defined in the U.S. and how does it differ from other criminal activity or violent domestic acts like those that might emerge spontaneously alongside a protest? How do you differentiate? So scholars tend to think about terrorism as opposed to other forms of political violence or or criminal violence by really differentiating the target of that violence from the audience for the violence. So if we're talking about crime, the target of the violence is generally whoever you're trying to rob or hurt or take something from or whatever. You generally don't want an audience as you don't want to be caught. Um, With terrorism, you're attacking a victim to send a message to an audience, usually to compel that audience to do something that they don't really want to do. So um, really, when we're talking about domestic, we're saying that's happening kind of in the context of one political system. And when we're talking about transnational or international terrorism, we generally mean one nationality is using this tactic against another or we're saying, um, you know, the state, a, a state might be involved or another state might be involved in uh, this activity against the nationality of another of, of another country. Uh, and then obviously within domestic, we're saying the perpetrators and the victims are all of the same nationality. So the January 6th Capitol riots first anniversary is coming up this month. Was it a protest that turned violent because of mob dynamics or was it an insurrection or a riot or domestic terrorism? Basically, what was January 6th, 2021, in your opinion? Well, I, I appreciate the question, and, and it's a hotly debated question. And it was it was debated almost immediately on, uh, this was happening on Twitter, but as it was going down, there were scholars and practitioners and just members of the public that were arguing this, like, what's going on? What do we call this? Um, and I think ultimately, it's a really tough call about I mean, for one, it's there were a whole series of events that happened on that day. So calling it one thing is a bit of a challenge because there were lots of different things happening. Um, but I, I'm, I guess I'm more certain what it wasn't than I am of what it was. 
And I, what I'm pretty confident in what it wasn't was terrorism. So again, you know, talking about the definitions we, we just discussed, um, the victims and the audience for this violence were the same. In this case, the U.S. government and state agents, police, Congress people, those types of things, we, those were the victims and they were the targets for the violence. And so that kind of rules out terrorism as, uh, you know, as something we would call it. it. It certainly had the hallmark of, you know, a violent riot. It got out of control. It seemed really disorganized, it purposeless, and purposeless at certain points. Um, so I'm, I'm comfortable calling it a violent riot, but some call some scholars and especially initially right after it happened and while it was going on called it a coup and i think it was close to that um you know and the folks who called it an attempted or failed dissident coup that seemed better than some people who are saying this is a was a military coup and it's not you know when we think about a coup we normally think about a military coup and the military wasn't really involved in any organized way they stood down really uh, you know, aside from some low-level soldiers that were involved in sort of um, sporadic uh, pieces of it. So I, I'm a little uncomfortable with the coup term, although, you know, especially when we're thinking about the military. Insurrection is a decent term because it says violence and an attempt to thwart the government. So I'm, I'm okay with insurrection. Um, you know, the challenging thing to piece out of this as well is that you know, some of the folks in the larger insurrection had plans for bigger things. Some of the folks were just there almost like it was Lollapalooza, taking pictures and drinking beers on the Capitol floor. Um, and so trying to isolate it as one thing is a challenge. Um, but I'm, I'm really confident that it wasn't terrorism. So let's talk about some of those people. Uh, Joe, the people who stormed and ultimately breached the Capitol included some, as you said, who had... Uh, organized in 10 and then some who were basically a grab bag of memes you had the shirtless guy with the horns you had the guy with his feet on the desk in speaker pelosi's office suite you had the olympic swimmer cleet keller so in your opinion were these people radicalized or misinformed were they intent on doing violence or just on taking pictures and they are criminals for their actions that day that's not in dispute but are they also it sounds like you wouldn't consider them terrorists. Would you consider them insurrectionists or, you know, people who are breaking and entering? How, how would you classify their ideology and, and their actions? Yeah, I would definitely agree with you that it's fair to call them criminals. They broke a whole lot of federal laws and uh, I wouldn't say that they were terrorists, but you know, the bigger question is sort of why were they moved to doing something violent I mean, I think there are lots of factors, but certainly extreme polarization in the country is one really important one. The echo belief chambers that we're seeing in um, social media and these other uh, sort of public spaces. Um, and then, you know, also something our, we don't like to talk about a lot in our system, but our, our political system is a winner-take-all electoral system. And that has consequences where losers feel like they've lost a ton. And so, you know, this is in proportion or in contrast to other democracies that tend to have more consensual systems where opposing parties are still part of government. Um, I think that's a factor that people don't have to talk about, but it's important. Um, and, you know, so I, I feel like uh, these it's very for these reasons, we could say these are factors that led people to get involved. I think there's this also um more sociological explanation where people like to be part of something bigger than themselves. And there was this kind of excitement and joy in some of the people, people's faces who were taking part in this in, in 
like in other protests that you might have seen in the U.S. and around the Capitol related to whether it's Black Lives Matter or the Women's March or what have you, there's this feeling of togetherness and solidarity. And I don't think we can discount that that was a motivation for many people that were there. So moving into movements and groups that you would consider domestic terrorism, over the past few years, what kinds of movements and groups have taken part in acts of U.S. domestic terrorism? And what kind of ideologies catalyze these movements? We're hearing a lot about white supremacy these days. Is that, in fact, the dominant uh, ideology in U.S. domestic terrorism right now, or is it not? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's fair to say that. Empirically, it's definitely fair to say that. I mean, there, there are lots of different extremists in our country. I mean, that's one of the joys of living in a big society with lots of different ideas. Uh, but the most prominent right now is certainly a far right. There are far left folks that are, uh, you know, sporadically doing terrorist attacks and and more um, other types of ideologies, but certainly far right is the big one. I mean, after, after 9-11 and into the 2010s, there was much more jihadi inspired violence, um, you know, that we saw and, and that's sort of trickled uh, away. But, you know, after Obama's election, things really shifted to the far right and in the far right direction. Uh, to the point where it's it's much more dominant, um, but yeah. So we have we have attacks that are ISIS inspired. We have animal rights activists. We have a few other ideologies that have done violent acts, but but the far right is is definitely the the dominant one. Now, the, one of the challenges with the far right though is that there's a ton of diversity within that sort of larger movement. Um, you know, some of it's been anti-Semitic with the temple attacks and attacks on private citizens. Um, some of it's been anti-LGBTQ. Um, there's also, you know, been larger conspiracies like Pizzagate that have motivated people towards violence. So it, when we say the far right, we're really saying a, a pretty big tent of disparate groups that have different interests and different targets. Joe Young, it's time to take five. This is when you, our guest today, get to change the world as you'd like it to be by single-handedly instituting five policies or practices that would change the world for the better. What five policies and practices would you institute to reform people who are radicalized? Well, thanks for the question. And uh, I'm going to be a bad student and say, I don't have five, I just have three. So we're going to call it take three. Um, But I mean, I think the first idea is something a lot of people, while it's pie in the sky that I would ever be in charge of, you know, making them a national policy that people would go along with. Uh, I think the first thing we should do and people could get behind is require some kind of national service after high school. Uh, Whether that's AmeriCorps, uh, Peace Corps, Teach for America, the military, all of these organizations can help us reduce the polarization that we're seeing in the United States right now and help us feel more connected to other folks. So the second policy I think I would do, uh, and this is a hard thing because your, your question is about what do we do once someone's radicalized? And the truth is once someone's radicalized, it's really hard. Um, they're already down a pathway. And so I would want to try and intervene before folks are radicalized. And, and my colleague, Cynthia Miller Idris, uh, who is working on lots of policies and programs related to this has has suggested that the best way to try and do this is actually inoculating people against misinformation and destructive ways of thinking. Uh, and we might inoculate people by, you know, making them better critical thinkers, giving them better civic education uh, and sort of intervene before it actually is, is sort of too late. It's like having a vaccine before actually getting treated for a disease. And then I think the third thing that I would want to do, and it's, it's very much related to the first, which is 
just have lots of experiences with the other. And right now, one of the worst things in our society is that while we're divided and polarized, we're, we're living in, in separate spaces. And lots of people who feel one way, let's say on the far left, are not interacting a lot with the far right and vice versa. I know ideological segregation, which is what we're having right now, that leads to hardened beliefs. And if we can interact with people who disagree with us in really civil and constructive ways, I think that could be another way. Wonderful. Thank you. Joe, I remember when we talked a few years ago, we talked about how terrorists become radicalized and we were talking mostly about in other countries and, and training camps in places in the Middle East and things like that. So tell me, what does radicalization of U.S. domestic terrorists look like? How and where does this occur? Uh, so this is, uh, you're asking lots of good questions and they're, uh, <laughs> uh, this is a hot debate among scholars. Uh, in, and I think it's important to start with you know, well, most scholars don't agree on the definition of radicalization, uh, but scholars do kind of have a useful distinction in the literature that, and that's between the behavioral radicalization and attitudinal rad- radicalization. And so by attitudinal, we mean, um, you know, that people have these extreme views and they're generally supportive of extreme slash violent actions, but behavioral radicalization, we mean they're actually plotting something or intending to do something violent. Um, so obviously, the more immediate concern for us is the behavioral kind. But you know, if we think it, and you've probably heard the term, it takes a village to make a good human. Um, it also kind of takes a village to generate a violent one as well. And so, you know, we have a good sense of kind of what might happen when someone becomes violent. What we don't quite understand is what's that link between our behavioral uh, radicalization, our attitudinal radicalization. Um, and we need, we just honestly need a ton more research here. Um, and part of the really unsatisfying answer here is that there doesn't seem to be a single pathway that gets us down this behavioral radicalization track. It isn't like we just go from step A to step B to step C, and then we see somebody violent. Um, there are many roads to that same destination, and folks sometimes can jump from one path to another. And, you know, we just aren't that good at predicting who's going to be violent and where. Uh, and, you know, we, we, there have not been a lot of great studies on this, to be honest. And I think you could argue that in radicalizing anyone, there's a role that's played by misinformation or disinformation. But I think what's changed over the past, I don't know, I don't know how many years, it's been a few, is the role that misinformation and disinformation on social media uh, in particular are playing, or maybe that's my perception, maybe that's not new at all, but what part do misinformation and disinformation especially on social media, play in this radicalization pipeline? I think what misinformation really does, uh, it's not necessarily the direct cause of violence, but I think it's an ingredient. And I think it really helps harden beliefs. So it doesn't create people's desires to do those things, but it allows people to just, um, you know, there's a term that psychologists like to use, which is called confirmation bias. And that is, we just seek out information that reinforces our own belief systems. And I think mis- misinformation helps us kind of um, create this confirmation bias where we're only taking in information that supports our worldview. And so I, I don't think it actually creates people who want to do these things, but it really hardens um, people who are sort of on the fence and sort of have these predispositions. Um, but again, this is not something I think there's been enough really good research on. This is a 
an area where we, we need more scholars working. And I ask this question knowing that it's a sensitive area. It's It's been noted that some white Americans are quick to label any violent activity by another ethnic or religious group as terrorism, but those same white Americans are notoriously hesitant to label political violence perpetrated by white men in the same way. So are there any similarities between U.S. domestic terrorism, as you see it now, and Islamist terrorism, either in terms of how people become radicalized or in the tactics they're using? Uh, Yes, I would say so. I mean, there haven't been a lot of studies where people compare sort of radicalization processes in one area over another. Most of the studies have been, let's look at far right and how they get radicalized and let's look at jihadi types and and we'll see how they get radicalized. There's been a lot less comparison in that in that space. However, we know that extremists learn from each other. And one of the first groups to successfully use suicide attacks, for example, was the LTTE in Sri Lanka. Um, and you know, Muslim extremists saw this and learned from it. You know, and, and LTTE were were Hindus, and you know, we saw this tactic kind of spread globally, uh, even though the LTTE sort of perfected it and started it. Uh, there was a spate of truck attacks more recently by jihadi groups that you probably has, have seen in, in Toronto and other places around the world. And it's been copied by the far right too. Um, so, you know, there are these tactical learning mechanisms that we see between groups, but also, you know, one real common thing between the far right and the jihadi groups is they both have really intense anti-Semitic conspiracy, conspiracy theories. Uh, and that seems to really bind them in in interesting ways and be like a common cause that's, that's, um, you know, incredibly troubling. Joe, nationalism unquestionably underscores a number of movements in the U.S. that have committed acts of domestic terrorism, but there seem to be instances of transnationalism within a couple of these groups. And just from the little bit of reading I was doing, I saw some anecdotal things about maybe a group in the U.S. goes over for, you know, almost like a camping out experience with some group in, in, in a country in Europe. And, and I don't know if this is, if this is a trend or if this really is just anecdotal. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on this? Does this represent a larger trend? Do you see nationalist groups in the U S working with groups in other countries and they're becoming some sort of transnational, um, white supremacist terrorist movement and, uh, coming, coming toward us? Yeah, some of the extreme far right groups like jihadi groups are networked internationally. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. And through, you know, throughout the US, Canada, Europe, Ukraine, Australia, these groups connect with each other, learn uh, different techniques from each other, raise money together. You know, uh, MMA is a way in the Ukraine, for example, that a lot of far right activists get connected and there are connections between those folks and the US far right. Um and, you know, most of these groups are, if we're talking about these networked far right groups are wanting to preserve some mythical ethnic purity and they see threats similarly and they see what their goals are, uh, are somewhat connected. Um, I'm not sure this is a new trend necessarily because we saw this sort of, of networked um, terrorist connections many times and hit throughout history. And so, you know, I'm not even sure it's even more extensive than we saw in say the sixties and seventies. And that's my next question. Is domestic terrorism more prevalent now than at any other time in U S history, or does it just sometimes seems that seem that way? Why or why not? Is it more or less prevalent now? Yeah, it's, it's not really, Uh, you know, the U S has for better or worse a really violent history and today seems bad. 
but it pales in comparison to the 1960s or 70s or, or even to the 1860s or even the 1760s. Uh, you know, when the U.S. started secretly bombing Cambodia in in the well, it was revealed in May of 1970. That led to an incredibly violent time in U.S. history. I mean, there were there were lots of peaceful peaceful protests across college campuses, but nearly 400 campuses were shut down. You know, even including American University, protesters occupied Ward Circle and the president's resident and were tear gassed and the National Guard was called in. Um, and, you know, this happened hundreds of campuses. And that's not even to mention what the state did at Kent State and Jackson State killing, uh, you know, students. 30 ROTC buildings were burned or looted at this time. Um, riots on dozens of other campuses. campuses. And we had terrorist attacks by radical leftists happening at the same time daily. So I, I would definitively argue that right now is not worse. Um, you know, we've had times where, where it's been bad, but kind of in a more, um, since the 1990s, and when we're thinking about um, a more proximate time frame, it seems worse. I sometimes want, and it's, it's all part of the 24-7 news cycle as well, right? I mean, these the times in the 60s and 70s that you're mentioning, it at least took... 24 hours for that news to get to most places or maybe 12 hours or whatever, whenever the evening news came on, but now it's instantaneous and you have um, video that's taken on site by people who were, who were in it and, and it's, you know, it's in real time and it just feels so immediate and it almost can, can lead you to feel as though the country is under siege somehow. But I hear you saying that it's, it's not worse. <laughs> it's just not yeah, great. I don't know if that makes us feel any better necessarily, because it does definitely, I, I hear you that it feels a bit um, awful what's happening right now. But in, in contrast, it's not as bad as that. Joe Young, thank you for joining Big World to discuss domestic terrorism and the January 6th attack on the Capitol. It's been very informative to speak with you. Oh, thank you. Big World is a production of the School of International Service at American University. Our podcast is available on our website, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you leave us a good rating or review, it'll be like New Year's resolutions that don't involve cutting out chocolate. Our theme music is It Was Just Cold by Andrew Codeman. Until next time. <laughs>